and this kills me, one of the most basic defenses is the most effective, and that's honeypots. I mean, think in terms of the networks that have been breached, that have been famous. I mean, I don't want to pick on one that I pick on all the time, but <laughs> there are a few out there that have been really famous. And if they've had just a simple honeypot, even honey PY deployed right behind the point of entry, when those attackers began to make way through the network, they could have triggered that and the IT staff. That was part of a conversation that we had with Adriel Dissertel and Noah Tongate. Now, I know I get excited about guests on this podcast a lot, but I'm really serious when I say that this is a very special episode. Adriel and Noah are top of their game penetration testers, and they come with them so much stories and knowledge about hacking and how to break into systems that I really feel like this episode should probably have some kind of disclaimer. So here it is. Don't do anything nefarious or dumb with the information that you hear on this podcast. That out of the way, I want to introduce who's going to be our guest on the podcast today. Adriel Dissertel may be a name that you're even familiar with. And that's because he's been on many documentaries, contributed to many articles and been in many news publications. Adriel is the founder and CTO of NetRegard, which is a top tier penetration testing that's really founded on the promise of delivering realistic and high quality penetration testing. Now, Adriel has so many qualifications that I could really spend a long time rattling them all off. But a few of the highlights is that Adriel's been in the industry for over 20 years. In fact, in 1998, when I was still playing with Tonka Trucks, he founded the Secure Network Operations, Inc., which was home to the SNO Soft research team. Now, this group gained worldwide recognition for its vulnerability research. While running SNO stuff, Adriel founded the Zero Day Exploit Acquisition Program, the EAP, and has also provided expert witness and testimony in US federal courts. And of course, if you're a reader of Forbes, The Economist, Bloomberg, or have watched the recent Viceland documentary on cyber war, then you may recognize him from there. But Adriel isn't alone in this episode. He's joined by Noah Tongate. Noah is a senior offensive security engineer for NetRegard, which is basically a fancy way of saying Noah is a very good hacker. For NetRegard, Noah conducts a variety of different penetration tests, for instance, on web applications, on networks, and even diving into social engineering, which we'll touch on in the coming episode. Noah isn't just a hacker for his day job, he's also a hacker in his free time by participating in many different hacking events such as Capture the Flags and gaining many accolades in these competitions. He also volunteers as a red team member in the Collegate Cyber Defense Competition, the CCDC, for multiple different regions around the US. With the introductions out the way, I can't wait to dive in to this week's conversation. That's all coming up, but right now, we're gonna take a very quick look at our Breach of the Week. This week is interesting because this week we're looking at Twitter. Twitter's internal source code was leaked publicly through one of their employees, potentially an ex-employee, but also some evidence to say that it's a current employee. And this is interesting, not because it posed a massive security risk to Twitter, but it reminds us of the security risk that our source code needs to be considered. Source code very frequently contains secrets. When Twitch's source code was leaked, it had over 6,000 credentials inside it 
We saw a similar story when Samsung's source code got leaked. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. NVIDIA, Microsoft, Rockstar Gaming were about a few companies that last year had their source code accessed by malicious actors. So what makes the Twitter source code story a little bit different? Well, this time it wasn't threat actors that attacked Twitter to leak their source code. This time the leak came from within. A new GitHub user that created an account on January 3rd called Free Speech Enthusiast, clearly a reference to Elon Musk's free speech stance, created an account on GitHub. From January 4th to March 10th, they were leaking huge amounts of internal source code belonging to Twitter. The prolonged period suggests that perhaps they were still employed or had access to the source code. Now, Twitter recently open sourced a lot of their code concerning their algorithm. So why is this a concern? Well, it goes to show that we need to stop considering source code as a locked asset. Attackers know that this is very easy to gain access to, and also hacking groups like Laxis just pay employees to grant them access to networks and code repositories. Why? Because it's known that these contain lots of that sensitive information. Twitter made a request to GitHub to take their source code down through the proper means, and are also pursuing legal action to force GitHub to reveal who this person was. Now, personally, I hope that that doesn't happen, but it does illustrate a point. As organizations, we need to make sure that we consider our source code an open asset. Even if we put it behind internal systems and behind authentication, we need to understand that there's a risk that this will be exposed. And the best way to prevent that risk is to make sure that no sensitive information is hiding in there for attackers because developers have become a predominant target for attackers. Speaking of those attackers, we're now going to dive into our main conversation with Adriel and Noah and exactly how attackers operate to gain access to your infrastructure. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about ransomware, but we're going to be talking about ransomware and kind of how it's changed over the last decade. So this is something that uh, both our guests has experience in. So with that said, let's get straight into it. I want to start by kind of getting everyone onto the same page here. I guess most people are probably familiar with ransomware, but what's a kind of quick high-level overview of it? Adriel, I'll direct this to you uh, first. What's a high-level overview of, of what ransomware is and what we're talking about today? Ransomware is, is a unique piece of software um, that's used to encrypt data on select systems after those systems have been identified by the attacker. So an attacker will first find their way or make their way into the infrastructure using different methods, using different technology, identify the endpoints, and then upload, download, whatever it might be, the ransomware uh, you know, to, to encrypt. And the idea is um, attackers will say, hey, uh, you know, we have your data. It's encrypted. If you want access to it, uh, pay us. So it's extortion. Uh, and we will decrypt it. Of course, there's no guarantee that if you pay, it's going to be decrypted. And chances are they've already exfiltrated all of your data. Um, so I think, Noah, you can probably give a bit of a deeper <laughs> deeper view to that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think Adriel kind of provided a, a good overview. I think that ransomware essentially is just uh, a p type of malware that encrypts the user's uh, data on the system. And usually they'll ask for a ransom or some kind of payment uh, via cryptocurrencies. Uh, more so nowadays, we're seeing a lot of ransomware kind of going into just siphoning the data off the system. So maybe there might be like a part two to the ransomware of Maybe an operator has to uh, hop onto the computer and then maybe leverage that data on the system 
or maybe even pivot within the network um, and then gather more data from that and, and kind of use it as blackmail um, or anything like that. Right. So it's 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 evolved a little bit in there. So, so ransomware today, when I, I guess when I first started learning about ransomware, it was kind of like these, or I'm going to say self-propelling viruses, you know, which would get on and, and automatically lock something and move it on. Well, that's not really the current state of ransomware right now, is it? Right, right. And un- unfortunately, the the way that I perceive it anyway is it seems that we're still marketing proverbial solutions as things that will stop this self-propagating malware. I don't feel like uh, I don't feel like there's enough discussion around, or maybe even understanding around, um, exactly what you said. It's if you have ransomware that's been deployed in your infrastructure. It's most likely because the threat actor has already breached your infrastructure, maintained a foothold, and they've been in there for a while, and they probably already exfiltrated your data. So by the time you end up getting that ransomware notice, your infrastructure is ready in a pretty deep state of compromise. Uh, historically, way back when, in my idea of time anyways, um, uh, ransomware was the kind of thing where you might receive an email from automatically have your system encrypted, uh, and then you could pay it, and you may or may not get you know, your, your desktop files or whatever else might be attached. And uh, I think that there was sort of um, an interesting thing that began to happen when ransomware began to encrypt not only the, you know, the desktops, but also the attached file systems, because then the business impact became more and more and more uh, uh, prevalent. Um, and of course, that's how things <laughs> sort of evolved into today. Um, I think, no, you probably give a pretty good <laughs> rundown on really the methods of breach on this stuff since that's one of your fortes (laughs) yeah so um i think you kind of hit the nail on the head essentially um kind of feeding off what i said before uh like like we're saying that essentially that malware operators are pretty much conducting what we like to call nowadays is a penetration test or maybe even a red team engagement so not only are they trying to do the external uh testing of the network but they're also looking for weak points inside the network to be able to breach, um, get a hold and kind of persist with on the network or with on that system, and then maybe sit dormant or um, kind of sit quietly on the network and then maybe laterally move um, to other systems where there's more valuable data and then essentially lock up the computer and hold that for ransom um, and possibly even use that data for other means um, such as blackmail or even uh, kind of targeting what the, the the companies fear the most. So, uh, that, uh, interesting. What they fear the most. Um, it seems like it used to be individual machines, individual uh, specific targets, or individual like we're going to go after this one server with this one bit of data. But more and more, I'm hearing about the entire universities where everything gets locked out. Uh, not just the student database, but literally payroll, f- faculty, staff, everything. Uh, manufacturing where they're not going after just you know one piece of it, but they're going after everything. What's um, can you talk a little bit about that evolution we've seen and really what's driving that? Is it just it's a bigger money pot that they're going after, or, or technical sophistication? What's the the driver here? I think at least from my perspective, I've seen. I know that I believe Crypto Locker was the very start of kind of the ransomware boom in the industry, and that was around 2013. Um, but I think that it was not only just the the money portion of it, of you know collecting, going after these larger organizations, but also uh, the success rate that CryptoLocker had back in 2013. Uh, and really due to that, 
uh, it's kind of you know made other threat actors want to hop on the same boat as them and and go after these larger targets in general. Um, I think another interesting point that it's not really covered in a, in a lot of blogs and things like that um, is that now we're seeing that a lot of these ransomware groups are kind of feeding off the fear um, of these companies because they'll have um, their fear of the data being publicly posted and public opinion kind of hindering the the company, uh, maybe hindering their market value. Uh, in addition to that, you also have regulators that uh, companies are trying to be within compliant of PCI compliant or GERP or, or things like that. And they're trying to stay within those regulations. So usually you'll have companies that will try to cover up these um, big ransomware operations. Um, and the, with the data that they're able to siphon off, it's, it's a good way for operators to not only lock the system and encrypt the actual physical device, but also leverage it outside of the network too by um, uh, kind of blackmailing, uh, kind of like what I was saying before, just blackmailing the organization saying, you know, if you don't uh, give us what we want, we're going to publicly pretty much bring down your what the public opinion, the stock market value of your company, um, and maybe even possibly have your company shut down due to auditors or regulators, um, you know, coming after you. Yeah, absolutely. An important artifact too, I don't think we hear talked about a lot with the data that gets stolen is um, whether or not you pay, the chances of the data being monetized is fairly high. And uh, one of the ways they monetize that data is by selling access to the infrastructure. So you'll find that businesses that have been ransomed and paid uh, are sort of put in a hot list for other threat actors uh, or even the same threat actors that might come back again later. Um, they'll maintain access using all kinds of interesting, you know, uh, the Trojans malware bots that they deploy as they're making their way into deploying the ransomware software. Um, and then, of course, you know, if they do happen to exfiltrate anything along the lines of, uh, you know, really sensitive trade secrets or something along you know, those lines, they'll monetize that too. So you you might say, hey, I'm going to pay the ransom and maybe or maybe not get access to your, to your data back. But if your data has already been stolen, I think that the payment of the ransom should be the least of the concern, but it still seems to be taking priority. Do we pay? Do we not pay? Um, I say don't pay <laughs> because your data has already been had and you're going to be contending with that and the damages realized by that for quite a while. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's get into, let's get into the, 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 the what to do section. Now, if you're an organized, you, you, you're on team don't pay, which I, I, I totally understand, but what, what can you do? Like, can you do anything once you're, Someone's come into your systems. You've had a deep compromise. They've ransomed you. They're blackmailing you. All of the all of the fun stuff we've just been talking about. What what can you do as a business? Do you have any options? Um, no, I was going to kind of add a, a portion to what Adriel's saying a little bit. I think um, when it comes to really paying, I know that there's a lot of agencies like the CIA and FBI that have publicly come out and have said, "Don't ever pay the ransom." And there are cases, and it's sad to say that there is. Uh, times when you might have to pay the ransom. Um, you might have companies that or smaller companies that are targeted. Um, and in order to keep this company afloat, they're going to have to get their data back, whether they like to pay the ransom or not. Uh, and really it just comes to, it really just varies on the company itself. In my opinion, if you have a large organization, it's kind of expected that they have backup solutions um, or kind of other prevention methods in place like uh, EDR and things like that. Um, but Really, uh, what it comes down to is kind of knowing the context of the company 
and uh, deciding really does it fit to pay the ransom or not. So, yeah, and I say you asked what can you do, um, and this is going to sound a bit self-serving, but it's what you can do um, because ransomware actors, these these different groups, are breaching infrastructures by hacking them. You know, which is technically what a good pen testing firm should do. The number one thing that you can do, and this is true for most offenses, is you can expose yourself to a threat, right? A penetration test that operates at levels that are uh, the same, using the same TTPs or similar as what you're going to encounter in the real world. And if you're testing at a realistic level of threat, right, against the right threat model and so on, in theory, you're going to identify the same types of vulnerabilities that these threat actors will be looking for. In theory, they're going to go after a guy that's similar to you, but that's not running quite as fast. So that's what we call realistic threat penetration testing. And there's actually a ransomware attack simulation service that does exactly this. So the idea is you go and you have your test. The test produces results. What those results really are are intelligence about how that actor is going to align with your risks. And more importantly, perhaps, how that attacker will move through your infrastructure without detection, exfiltrate your data, then deploy their technology while evading everything. If you have that kind of insight, you can build effective defenses. And can I tell you, and this kills me, one of the most basic defenses is the most effective, and that's honeypots. I mean, think in terms of the networks that have been breached, that have been famous. I mean, I don't want to pick on one that I pick on all the time, but (laughs) there are a few out there that have been really famous. And if they've had just a simple honeypot, even honey PY deployed right behind the point of entry. When those attackers begin to make way through the network, they could have triggered that and the IT staff even would have said, hey, you know, our web server running Apache struts shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, running the scans across the infrastructure. Uh, we should go shut it down before something significant happens. Um, yeah. For the listeners that that, that may not Understand what 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 is what is Honey Py? How how would that have stopped? Or how would that have alerted you to to an attacker in your infrastructure? All right. So so uh, imagine you have a computer system. This is what Honey Py is in theory. Imagine you have a computer system that sits on an infrastructure and it does nothing. It serves no business purpose. Under no circumstance should anybody ever try to connect to it. But if you were breaching the infrastructure and you saw the system, perhaps it might look interesting to you. Oh, it's an old version of Windows, an old version of Linux, whatever it might be. Now, what HoneyPY will do and what most, if not, I think all honeypots will do, usually based on configuration, but the moment a connection is initiated to these systems, they'll say, hey, somebody is connecting to me. And because they serve no purpose, because nobody should ever connect to them, it's never a false positive. It could be because you have a piece of malware trying to propagate in the infrastructure. It could be because you have an employee doing something rogue. It could be because you have an IT admin running a process and forgot about a specific system. But in all cases, when you get a connection to Honeypot, it's a positive. Um, We've actually, we were running just for tests a while back, um, Honeypots on several different infrastructures just to see, you know, the rates of false positives and, you know, so on and so forth. And we found that they had an incredibly low volume of noise, right? So it was very rare that we would get an alert. And we found that when they did get touched, it was always something interesting. Might not necessarily be a breach, could be a misconfiguration, could be something else, but it was always interesting. So if you understand how attackers, right, i.e. through realistic testing, if you understand how attackers are going to move through an infrastructure, 
you can deploy honeypots in sort of a strategic manner along what I call, or we call the path to compromise. And then as the attacker moves along that path, you're going to let them like a Christmas tree. And all you have to do is respond to the first incident, dig into it and say, hey, this isn't normal. Uh, and you can prevent, you know, damage, substantial damage. And Honey PY is free. So the ROI on that is pretty significant. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so yeah, definitely. You described a couple things there that it sounds like if you are top of your game, if you have a security team and the resources, Honey PY definitely something to look into, especially if you're uh, the the free tier. There sounds pretty good. Uh, uh, and then yeah, full on pen testing. Obviously, that's what we should be doing and making sure the uh, infrastructure is secure. But do you have any other just general advice for maybe companies that don't have that level of maturity? Uh, like just how do you prevent malware um, or how do you prevent uh, ransomware from getting in the system in the first place? Just general advice tips. I think um, on this one, uh, just kind of add what Adriel's saying uh, is that when it comes to honeypots, it's, it's a good solution. But in this case, uh, you may have companies that are a bit smaller and they can't really afford those or maybe not have the IT team to the know-how to set those things up. Um, I think it's really kind of a, a multi-layered solution, in my opinion. Uh, you can see it how, how you want fit. Adra, I think, explained it best of maybe starting with uh, a penetration test or something even small just to kind of get the attack surface and see those weak points uh, and then kind of build off of those points. So uh, if we conduct a smaller penetration test, we're able to say, hey, you know, you don't have antivirus. Maybe we suggest that you start installing antivirus or kind of endpoint detection solutions or, hey, I noticed that the antivirus is able to collect me, but you didn't respond fast enough. Maybe we should look into having some kind of um, central management system where we can kind of aggregate logs and then figure out how to respond to those things. Uh, and really, the, the most simple solution is just even providing that security training for your employees and being having those uh, employees tested and and constantly tested, maybe not during a specific time, but just randomly throughout the year to to make sure that they are up to date and they are aware of making sure that they're not clicking on those illegitimate websites or downloading or running uh, illegitimate software. Um, so it's not only just putting the trust in the employees, it's also a multi-part solution of the employees have to be aware and know that this is not a good thing to go to or click on these sites, but also the security is in the hands of the company um, to also, you know, enable those kind of uh, AV solutions or EDR solutions. So I only say that because uh, I think that a lot of companies, there's a misconception that companies will try to put a lot of the point, the blame at their own employees when really it should be, um, kind of both the company that's doing the action of securing the network, but also training the employees too. So, yeah, I think I think one of the things that you hit on Noah that's critically important that just doesn't seem to get played on all that much um, in the industry as a whole is the importance of continued testing, the importance of of keeping people under threat, and within that, most importantly, knowledge transfer. Right. One of the things that we have noticed just in our, you know, almost what, <laughs> since 2006 doing this, right, is the customers that we have that benefit the best are the ones that interact with us the most. So if we can, if we can transfer knowledge and uh, by that, I mean, teach them to think in a similar way, like to Noah, myself or any other people on the team, they 
almost naturally begin making decisions that will thwart, uh, you know, the inbound threat. Uh, and that's not done by just, you know, having one test and then thinking it's going to go. The one test is going to give you a foothold. But every time you test, as the tests repeat, there are a couple of things that happen. A, we'll build more knowledge so we can operate at a higher degree of threat. And we'll also understand where certain things are that need to be fixed. And every year or six months or whatever it might be, come back in and reassess and see where the customer is at and actually help them drive that footprint forward. Um, we have had cases uh, which have been uh, good and bad where we've effectively uh, almost worked ourselves out of positions because we went from customers that on year one, uh, you know, we were able to breach all the way up to about year seven and then year eight, nine and 10, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden it was like going up against a brick wall because they'd learned so much uh, that their their infrastructures were just reactive and they were sharp and they knew what to look for. Um, we still work with them, but it's at a different level now because of how far they've gone. Um, so that continual effort, that knowledge transfer is so much more valuable than saying, hey, you have a vulnerability here. It's, well, why do I have a vulnerability? How do I deal with it? How could I have found it? How do I respond to this? What wasn't I thinking about right? And the moment you get that thought process in mind, not only can they do that, but they can also say, well, what is a real risk? Right. And how do I address that in an effective manner? There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that that perspective of we can't just blame everyone else in the org and say, hey, this is your problem. You're causing this uh, without providing some kind of training, some kind of ramp to say, OK, this is how we fix that as well. It's very easy to throw that number around like 87 percent of all security issues are human based. Uh, but just end the conversation there. And it's like, oh, well, well now it's on you to, to fix that. Um, so definitely continued education is something we believe in as well. And think that that's very important for not just ransomware, but all malware, all, all security. Um, want to switch up just a little bit going from talking about human side of things to the AI side of things and the emergence of AI uh, here recently, We've seen a lot about or heard a lot about chat GPT. How are these things factoring in if they are at all? Uh, have we seen anything on the horizon of how this is affecting the, the ransomware game? Yeah. Um, honestly, I think it's kind of an interesting question because there has been a lot of hype around um, platforms or these AI platforms in general, just kind of like jet, chat GPT. Um but in my opinion, I've played a little bit around with them and I've asked them, hey, can you can you write a, a malware that can encrypt a file or encrypt an entire um, directory or maybe even just snippets to kind of uh, piece together things? And it, and it does a half decent job, but it's nowhere le near the level of sophistication, essentially, of what we'll see in these advanced adversaries. Um, so I don't think really, uh, at least from the AI perspective, something that we really have to worry about, uh, at least right now maybe in a few years when it gets a little bit more uh more perfected and more uh i guess down to a t then then it might be a little bit more of a concern but for now i think that uh we're not really too concerned with it with ai yeah i have, I have to agree i think it doesn't have enough uh really high quality sample sets to learn from to be able to do anything mind-blowing um, but I, I agree i think in a few years <laughs> the landscape might be very different yeah, it's it's really interesting because it does run on the sample set, so it it would need to it it would need to be able to have access to 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 a lot of high quality malware to be able to reproduce it. 
I, I think probably, you know, but I, what I think might, it might do is lower the barrier to entry for someone wanting to do something malicious, something simply malicious, right? You know, so it might, okay, so chat GGP isn't going to be able to hack Google when you write a command into it, but it may produce some malware, something that you can send in an email, you know, to, to, to do something, to do something minor. Um, which is which is interesting. I don't know the whole AI, the AI side of things is is scaring, is scaring me. I I spent I spent an hour running code the other day and kept getting an error. And I plugged it into ChatGDP and it was, it it gave me a solution. And I was like, oh oh god, <laughs> we're done for. <laughs> I have a I have a close friend that um uh, focuses on uh, AI uh, safety, not security, but safety and. A lot of the concerns that he's that he's had are coming to fruition, <laughs> which is really unfortunate. Um, and uh, writing code and you know uh, developing malware or analyzing things or uh, any of it, I mean, it's it's really quite powerful and it really runs the risk of displacing a lot of things or <laughs> creating a lot of new things of nefarious <laughs> one or the other. Continuing on from this kind of theme, or you know, we, we said that it could maybe make the targets a bit different. One of the, one of the things that you were talking about in there when, when you were talking about solutions is that, that that I think some people might be surprised at is that when you're talking about penetration testing, when you're talking about doing, you know, conducting these, you're not only talking about large organizations. You 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 kind of alluded to like that lots of organizations. So, how big of an organization or how small of an organization, you know, should should you know, what's the size of an organization that should start considering pen testing? What, what, how big should they be? And, and, what, and what can they expect if they go down this path? Yeah, I mean, I, so when I founded NetRegard, I, one of the, I guess, philosophies was that, you know, everybody should be able to afford good security. And by product, I guess, we serviced a small bar in New York City. I was worried about their cash registers all the way up to, uh, you know, some of the largest multinational companies, Las Vegas casinos. I mean, you name it. Um, what companies really need to do is they need to have an understanding of what the threat is looking for and what types of threats will align with them. We're going to be most interested in them and they have to keep that sort of refreshed. And then as they move forward and building out their infrastructure or doing whatever it is that they're going to do, um, they have to uh, deploy uh, the right security measures or technologies or mindsets to kind of help them get along that path. And they should not. I mean, we have best practices everywhere and we have recommendations everywhere. They should not read those and believe that those apply to them exclusively. Because you have one organization that does things in a unique way, hiring a new, you know, Jimmy, Joe, Bob, Bill, whoever it might be, uh, that has a strange philosophy about doing God knows what. And maybe these standards do not apply to what this person has created and what this person's done. So from day one, they have to understand what it is that they've done, how it's unique, and really kind of keep that security up front. If they, if they work that way, if they kind of grow their infrastructure that way with security at the front of their mind, um, they'll be able to do what I believe anyways, if it's done right, in an efficient and an effective way. It doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg. Right, not if it's done right. Um, I hope that kind of answered the question. <laughs> it sounded kind of convoluted, but I hope that sort of answered the question. Um, 
And uh, larger companies, you know, when they're looking at, uh, I guess, building a security posture, they might have to take some steps back because they might have made uh, or, I guess, implemented certain technologies or or began to believe in certain philosophies. And then just through testing, they realize these things aren't effective. Um, and we've seen that. And ironically, going back to, I guess, something I kind of said or alluded to before, a lot of times when they step back, the solutions they step into follow that keep it simple, stupid mindset, right? Uh, they're able to deploy solutions that are, are, are just almost surprisingly simple and extremely effective. Um, so it, it goes back to know your enemy <laughs> from day one. Uh, don't make assumptions um, and, uh, you know, work with a firm that will uh, charge you based on what the work is that they have to do, not based on something else, right? So if you're small, you'll be charged one thing. It's affordable. If you're large, you might be charged something else, but it's still affordable. And, and what about, and what about, so this will this will make sense, and I think a lot of the audience you know, will be coming from tech organizations, your startups, maybe large tech companies. Now this will all make sense, but is it just tech companies? Uh, um, let me rephrase: tech company. Is it just kind of software houses that should be doing penetration testing? You mentioned a bar that you did some pen testing for. So you know, if there's someone, if there's someone that, that's kind of not in this world, that's saying, "Hey, this is interesting, but it's not for me." Um, I used to be a building architect. I have stories about uh, when when uh, certain people had you know their their weeks worth of work ransomed. Who who are we talking about? What organizations should be getting pen tests done? I think uh, realistically everybody, but it should be at a level of threat that's consistent with reality, right? Um, and that's going to change. I mean. Look at what's going on with healthcare, healthcare and hospitals and high schools. I mean, education, right? Versus what was happening 10 years ago. Um, as the bad actors recognize new opportunity, they're going to shift whatever that industry is. So you don't know when they're going to shift to you. They could shift to security companies, right? You don't know when they're going to shift to you. And you don't know when they're going to shift away from you. When you go into this type of thing, you need to you need to, any kind of business is what I mean. doesn't matter what kind of infrastructure organization you're running. When you have one and you have people behind it, you really should be doing penetration testing that, uh, you know, is consistent with reality. And what I mean by that is most pen tests, even today, I mean, they're like they were in 2004 when PCI came out, right? It's a vulnerability skin that gets vetted by a person. And that's uh, one of my old analogies that everybody uh, I guess some people hate it and love it, but it's like testing a bulletproof vest with a squirt gun, <laughs> right? You need you need to um, you need to make sure that you don't do that. You need to make sure that you keep it consistent with what's going to happen in reality and and drive that forward. But like you said, I mean, you know, you were doing architect work, or it, it, somebody encrypts all your files or steals your files. It's a hard time. Um, it's the same thing across the board. I mean, education, healthcare, it doesn't matter. Manufacturing, construction, you know, it's all. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to keep spreading the message of our cybersecurity awareness and training for everyone. So thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, just so we can have you know one big takeaway for people that might have skimmed through the episode and are looking for those big takeaways here at the end. Could you maybe give us like top five things that an organization can do to protect themselves today? Sure. I think really just doing a security penetration test or, or red team engagement would be number one for us. Uh, number two really would be for you to kind of implement or figure out those kind of solutions, whether that be antivirus or endpoint 
detection solutions um, to make sure that they're installed on the network. Um, that's really kind of preventing those attacks. I think the next big uh, bullet point number three would be essentially detecting those. So that would be going along with honeypots or intrusion detection systems and things like that to make sure those are also implemented. Um, and I think uh, the fourth one would be essentially just taking all that data, because once you have all those systems installed, you're going to have to kind of aggregate that data and be able to parse through them or be able to have a platform where you can kind of narrow down those targets uh, and figure out what security issues are and what those attackers might be looking to kind of breach. And lastly, but not uh, most important in my opinion too, would be doing the security training. Because really at the front lines, it's going to be those employees. They're going to be the ones usually either being fished or the ones that are going to be picking up the USB sticks outside of their company and trying to plug it in. Um, or they're going to be the you know the weakest link essentially to be able to get on a phone call and and talk to them to try to convince them to install some kind of malware uh, and then further breach within the network. So security training is a is a huge thing. Yeah, and I would add to the security training continued knowledge transfer. <laughs> uh, I find when you you mentioned the USB sticks, the one thing that always blows my mind away is that no matter what cybersecurity conference you go to there's at least one vendor that's giving away USB sticks as like swag. And it's kind of like, what What are we doing? A QR code in the background being scan this and a, and a, and a USB stick. <laughs> it, we, we do it because we think it's hilarious that people will still take them. And I've actually not been allowed to, but I've actually wanted to put something in the USB stick to say, you shouldn't have taken this. <laughs> a little rubber ducky in there. <laughs> you have been pwned. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We, I have one sitting right here, actually. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so moving into the next one, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, do you have a story, a funny story that you can share about a pen test that that happened? You can remove names if needed, but is there a, a funny story that we can uh, we can share here? Yeah, sure. I think the number one that comes to mind is is. Uh, this one client is a client of ours that was in the manufacturing industry. And essentially, uh, during this portion of the penetration test, I was focusing more on the external portion and the social engineering. So I was trying to come up with a ploy to try to get them to either click on a phishing link. Um, and I figured out, you know, wh why continue with just doing the a phishing email with the regular um, kind of sending a phishing email? Hope they go to the link and type credentials. Why not try to give them a phone call? So I started off by essentially doing some password spraying. So uh, I use database breaches, um, things like that to kind of collect a big password list and then use LinkedIn to essentially uh, get a list of all the employees and try to authenticate to their any kind of their external network infrastructure. Uh, from there, I did identify several accounts. And once I identified those accounts, I noticed that they had multi-factor authentication. And I think there's a big misconception that once you know, the attacker hits that multi-factor authentication, that's the end of it. In reality, it's not. Uh, kind of like the USB sticks, um, I was able to kind of gather more data. So I knew at this point that they were running Duo. So they were running um, Duo as their multi-factor multi authenticator. Um, so doing some research or just previous experience with Duo, I know that they have a bypass code. So I was trying to figure out a way, what can I do to kind of get that bypass code from either the help desk or, or whoever the admin is at that time. 
So did some Googling. I was able to call up the company and get a hold of their help desk and ask them some questions over several days to make it not as noticeable and figured out that they require two pieces of information for getting this bypass code. One of them is your birth date. And the second one is the last four of your social security number. So as soon as I hopped off that call, I immediately started to go research um, some of those people that are already identified as uh, password spraying victims or using common passwords uh, and was able to uh, essentially figure out their birth dates or several of them pretty easily through social media posts or posts that were on LinkedIn saying, it's my birthday, celebrate with me. Uh, so I was able to leverage that, um, took note of all this. And I, I took note of other kinds of information like new employees and things like that, just in case you know I had to kind of go a little bit deeper and uh, explain when I did decide to make that phone call to the company. So the next portion was uh, to try to figure out how to get that social security number. Uh, a lot of there, there's been a lot of breaches, for example, like the Equifax breach, where uh, social security information has been leaked. So usually it's pretty obtainable, but for this client, I couldn't find anything, or at least for these these victims, I couldn't find anything. Um, so my next step essentially was to take all the data that I've gathered and to make a phone call directly to these people that I've already identified with weak passwords and that I've already identified with their birth date. So I went ahead uh, and called one of the victims. Uh, they had a, a, a phone right there on their desk. So it was a direct line uh, directly at their desk. I called them and impersonated IT and asked them, uh, I've wanted to first build some rapport with the client. So I said, hey, uh, I provided a real IT help desk person's name after getting that from LinkedIn, um, and then was able to essentially build some rapport by saying, this is your your boss is John Smith, correct? And they said, yes, it is. Um, your title is this, is this correct? And then try to kind of build that rapport with the client so they or the victim so they can kind of trust me. And then once they trusted me, I asked them for the data that was the most important, which was the social security number. So the very end of the call, when I was trying to vish this client, I said, well, I just need to confirm some last bit of data. Can you please confirm the last four of your social security number? And they happily provided it to me. So <laughs> I was able to essentially gather all the data that I needed um, without even sending a phishing email. So there was no uh, hard evidence for the organization to essentially attribute to me other than one phone call to one employee. So uh, once I got that, uh, what was really interesting was they had a Citrix gateway that was running externally. And uh, that was also had multi-factor. So I used that to essentially log into their Citrix gateway and in the Citrix gateway, you could spin up virtual computers or virtual machines. And I was able to pretty much pivot from an external attacker's perspective internally uh, and then kind of laterally move all the way ultimately until gaining uh, the administrative access of the entire network. So complete compromise from the external perspective. Pretty, pretty fun engagement. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's very impressive. All your base are belong to us, right? <laughs> I, I love that one. <laughs> Big takeaway there is don't answer the phone. That's some good advice, but you might not be able to, you know, operate. <laughs> That's such a good point to end on that MFA isn't uh, the be an end all. You should have it, um, but don't think that it's impenetrable. You know, Uber had a recent uh, case where an attacker bypassed it and was able to access their PAM system. So. 
you know, similar complete takeover. Well, we've come to the end of the episode. I want to thank both of you so much for, for coming on. It's been a, an awesome episode. Oh, go for it, Dwayne. Go for it. I have one, one last thing. Uh, this is something I heard at a conference uh, recently. I want to know if you guys had heard this as well. Uh, how did the hacker get away from the FBI? They ran somewhere. <laughs> I I'm stealing that. That's like a dad joke. I'm totally stealing that. Again, <laughs> and uh, software or uh, security WV pulled that joke and it's somewhere talking. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been an awesome episode. There's lots of takeaways. Um, and I do hope that one day you will uh, join us again and uh, share some more stories. So thank you both for, for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Yeah, for having us. It'd be a pleasure to come back anytime. <laughs>